This podcast contains mature themes and explicit language. Movie Lovers is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to our second official mini-sode. Hello, everyone out there in movie land. So from the response on social media and just looking at the numbers, including a shorter, more digestible and timely episode like the one we did on Phoenix Rising a couple weeks ago, seemed like a good format to throw into the mix from time to time. As with everyone, mine and Jonah's lives are in a constant state of ebb and flow of busyness. We've been super, super busy with work in our personal lives right now, so producing these shorter episodes really works out well for all parties involved. So today I'm going to talk at you about the movie Being the Ricardos, but mainly about Nicole Kidman. The Oscar nominations came out today, which is super exciting. Huge shout out to Andrew Garfield for getting a Best Actor nomination for Tick, Tick, Boom. If you haven't listened to our episode on Tick, Tick, Boom, definitely go do so and watch the movie, especially if you're a rent head. Holy shit. Okay. Um, But I think that Nicole Kidman's Actress in a Leading Role nomination is very much earned as well. Fellow Best Actress nominees include Jessica Chastain for The Eyes of Tammy Faye, which was fucking awesome, by the way. Olivia Coleman in The Lost Daughter, Kristen Stewart in Spencer, and Penelope Cruz in Parallel Mothers. She's in good company, that's for sure. I still need to see The Lost Daughter and Parallel Mothers. I actually had never even heard of Parallel Mothers, but I really do love Penelope Cruz, so fine by me. Um, I try to see at least all of the best actress films when it comes to Oscar season because that's where my focus just kind of automatically goes. Um, But the Being the Ricardos was also nominated for Best Actor, Good job, Javier Bardem. And for Best Supporting Actor, J.K. Simmons is fucking awesome. So no surprise there. I did want to point out three ladies that seem to be getting some internet buzz about uh, getting snubbed for Best Actress. Lady Gaga is kind of the one at the top of the list. I still haven't seen House of Gucci, so I don't really have a definitive opinion. But she did win the New York Film Critics Circle Best Actress honor. So, I don't know. I've heard a lot of mixed reviews about House of Gucci, so I don't really know how to feel about it. Eh. Um, But another film that I haven't seen yet is Licorice Pizza, and the internet is calling on Alana or Elena Haim for being snubbed. Taking a first-time actor and sweeping them off their feet with an Oscar nomination is a time-honored Academy tradition, as I read in an article that I can't remember where I grabbed it from. Anna Paquin, Lupita Nyong, Jennifer Hudson, Julie Andrews, and Barbara Streisand all won acting awards for their first movie roles, like Hudson and Streisand. Alana Haim was was a celebrated musician before making the transition to the big screen. I think she is still a celebrated musician. I don't really listen to Haim, but I guess they're awesome. 
Her performance in Licorice Pizza displayed such easy charm and natural star power, it's surprising that the Academy didn't induct her into its celebrated first-timers club this year. I don't know. I just feel like there are a lot of really good roles to choose from. So, I don't know. Maybe um, these beginner folks just couldn't quite get in past all of the awesome seasoned actresses that did get nominated. And then the third snub that I read about was Frances McDormand as... Lady Macbeth. In the tragedy of Macbeth, she did win last year for Nomadland, so I'm not really too upset about that one, and we all know she's amazing. So it's kind of like with Meryl Streep. How many times are you going to fucking nominate her? Let's just move on. But to get us in the mood to chat about Nicole, let's watch the trailer for Being the Ricardos. I am the biggest asset in the portfolio of the Columbia Broadcasting System. Quiet, please. The biggest asset in the portfolio of Philip Morris Tobacco Westinghouse. Roll sound. Let's do our show. I get paid a fortune to do exactly what I love doing. Um, they got their money's worth. Pictures up. I work side by side with my husband, who is genuinely impressed by me. And all I have to do to keep it is kill. Oh. For 36 weeks in a row. Okay, let's go. And then do it again the next year. You know, I did this show so Desi and I could be together. Ladies and gentlemen, enjoy the show. And action. I had no idea it was going to be a hit. in our last mini-sode, I'm going to cherry pick just a few of our usual categories to discuss just so we can keep this episode on the shorter side. I don't think anybody wants to just listen to me talk for an hour and a half, although I definitely could. Uh, let's do a quick Mally Explains Movies. Mally Explains Movies. In 30 seconds or less? Yeah, right. So I'm going to keep this simple, and I'm just going to quote a Rolling Stone review of the film. Being the Ricardos is a lot of things, including but not limited to a scenes from a marriage melodrama. As one character puts it, they were either tearing each other's heads off or tearing each other's clothes off, cut to scene involving both. A portrait of an OG boss lady who took no prisoners and even less shit. A peek at how the 1950s TV show Sausage got made, and a great excuse for current famous people to play beloved famous people of the past. I just really don't think I could say it any better than that. This movie is really just a wonderful mashup of Lucille Ball's life. Uh, technically, it takes place over a week-long period where they are recording one episode, um, and a lot of behind the scenes conversations are going on regarding Lucille Ball being pregnant and Desi and Lucille's marriage, along with flashbacks to when they first met and things that have happened in her career along the way. So it's one of those, uh, slice of life biopic type movies, not, 
not too unlike Spencer, but definitely a very different vibe. So I think it's pretty obvious that my focus today is going to be on who I would award best actor to and subsequently who I would give an Oscar to. And that's Nicole Kidman. Funnily enough, all of the three performances I have seen thus far for Best Actress are all based on real people. Tammy Faye, Princess Diana, and Lucille Ball. Knowing the way the Academy functions, I don't think Nicole will actually get the award, sadly. But at the same time, I really feel like it's a toss-up as to who will actually win. Maybe I'll have a more definitive answer for you on that once I've watched the other two movies, which hopefully I will get around to doing before the actual Oscars themselves. I also really like how this Rolling Stone review describes Nicole Kidman's performance being in two different facets, and this is how she kind of describes it in all the interviews she gives also. So because you get to see two different versions of Lucille Ball in the film... That makes perfect sense. So you see TV Lucy from the show we all know and love, and you see the real Lucy, or Lucille, as you might differentiate between the two versions of the same person. So Kidman has gotten mixed reviews in her performance from everything from her facial prosthetics to her age to the acting itself. But back to this Rolling Stone article, I really like how they break it down. They state that you see glimpses of Lucy as the character version of herself. Quote, The onstage ball, the chess master of comic timing with the rubbery face and first-rate wine, shows up in micro spurts. Quote, Where do you draw the line between imitation, caricature, and personal interpretation? It's a really great question when anybody is playing a real person in a film. You definitely do see glimpses of what feels like the real deal at times. The recreation of that grape stomping scene, for example, we all know that scene. We all know that wide-mouthed expression that Lucy makes over and over again. And Nicole hits those spot on. But yes, there are times when we're seeing I Love Lucy as an audience member as opposed to behind the scenes and Kidman does fall a little flat of totally achieving Lucille Ball's goofy nature when she's playing Lucy. But do we really want an absolute carbon copy? I mean, that's my question. People will either criticize an actor for being too much of a caricature and completely imitating a real person and not putting anything real into it. All they did was work on doing an impersonation or they complain that it's too far from the real thing. So in my mind, I feel like Nicole did a really good job towing that line when it comes to the Lucy that we know from watching this insanely popular show. I remember watching I Love Lucy on Nick and Knight when I was a kid. It was it was the best. I fucking love that show. So then they go in this this Rolling Stone article, they go out and they, they point out the other version of Lucy. The savvy businesswoman and brassy dame, as they put it, shows up in spades. This is the part that Kidman had to use more creativity to find. Yes, she had lots of footage granted to her by Lucille and Desi's daughter, Lucy, but this is the side the world hasn't necessarily seen of Lucille Ball. In an interview with the SAG-AFTRA Foundation, she talks about working with vocal coach Tom Jones and how they tackled Lucy's voice first, then moved on to Lucille's. She talks about how sometimes you can tackle an accent phonetically, like you would read music on a page, but other times you tackle an accent by ear, the way you'd learn music by ear. Lucy and Lucille both had a musicality to them, so for her, the process of 
learning at least the speech patterns and the the accent because Nicole Kidman is Australian. So anything, any character that she's playing that's not Australian, she's needing to get a vocal coach, surely, to try and get that right. Um, she she took more of a by ear approach, which as the partner of a musician who has learned his craft all by ear, some some failed attempts at, at piano lessons when he was a kid and that he just couldn't quite focus on. Um, but to have that kind of ear is something you can't teach and I think really goes to show Nicole Kidman's vast skills at acting. Moving on to my controversial take. I honestly don't know that this is all that controversial because the patriarchy, but um, Lucy's blooming career kind of leaves Desi in the dust at various points in the film. And it's a really interesting dynamic to watch. And I feel like it's one all of us women know from some relationship or it not even doesn't even have to be a romantic relationship, any kind of relationship that you maybe have with a man and you're in the same industry and maybe you start getting a bit more success than your male counterpart might. In the film, Lucille pushes for Desi to be part of I Love Lucy in the first place. She really has to fight for it. And then later on in the film, she pushes really hard for him to get production credit. It was definitely, you know, where production credit was due, but also pushing for it in order to save her marriage because her success and her voice is overpowering that of her husband's. You know, it was the 1950s then, a time when pushing for your wife to stay home and not to work was more normal. But you see Lucy bucking these norms time and time again throughout the film, pushing to continue her career and to be successful. Women like her were pioneers, not only in the film industry, but in general. And to think that we've come so far from the 1950s, and yet women still have to fight to be part of the conversation in so many industries says a lot. I think, again, for any couple that works in the same industry, some tension would naturally build. But when it's the woman who is more successful than the man, that's when a certain kind of, a certain kind of man gets a bruised ego and will start to cause problems. Not all men, but a certain kind of man. And I think we all know who that certain kind of man is. We as women are expected to champion our male partners and be their cheerleaders. But in these circumstances, if the roles are flipped, it's not so much expected that men should do the same for us. So I don't care that it's not the 1950s anymore. It still kind of feels like that. Not going to lie. And I've been in a relationship in the past like that. So my emotional take, I'll keep this short and sweet. Uh, also in that SAG-AFTRA Foundation interview that I mentioned, uh, Nicole Kidman talks about the style in which Lucille flirts with Desi. She's really kind of getting into all those nitty gritty details of Lucille's character. And she talks about how when she flirts with Desi, it's not at all coquettish. It's more alpha. Even though she, as a woman, is needy and vulnerable and wants a real home, she's not going to negotiate on those things. And either Desi can give her that or he can leave. This attitude is reminding me of someone special in my life right now. I'll just leave it at that. But uh, she also has this, I don't have any fucking time to waste mentality. And it really takes a strong-willed woman to look 
a prospect square in the face and say, if you can't give me what I want and what I need, I'm going to go. And the other party better fucking pony up and bring their A-game or step aside. And I really, really admire that. And if this special someone is out there listening to this episode, I very much admire that quality in you, my dear. Let's skip ahead to impact on the industry. Obviously, it's too soon to say with this particular film being the Ricardos, but Oscar-wise, it's definitely looking like an actor's film. Those performances that have been nominated, Nicole Kidman, Javier Bardem, and J.K. Simmons, wouldn't be possible without Aaron Sorkin's beautiful ability to write amazing screenplays. So there's that. But only the actors got nominations in this case. This is Aaron Sorkin's third shot at directing, and all three films have gotten plenty of love. This, uh, The Trial of the Chicago 7, and Molly's Game. But the consensus of film critics seems to be that he should stick to what he's good at, and that's writing. I don't know, my opinion is pretty wishy-washy on the matter. He's a quality storyteller, no matter what way you spin it, so I say just leave it at that. I think Lucille Ball's impact on the television and film industry is a bigger topic for discussion, honestly. As portrayed in this film, oftentimes the only woman in the room or the only female voice speaking up in regards to I Love Lucy, Lucille Ball's legacy is one of power and determination. She was honored in 2001 by the National Women's Hall of Fame, and their website states, One of the most beloved comedians of all time, Lucille Desiree Ball, left an impact on the business and entertainment industries that still endures today. Ball once said, you cannot teach someone comedy. Either they have it or they don't. Lucille was known as the Queen of Bees in the beginning of her career, starting in 1933, for the many roles she played in bee movies. She appeared in over 75 films before I Love Lucy even happened. I Love Lucy itself pioneered the television comedy industry. Technically, it's responsible for pioneering a three-camera setup, a set, and a live audience. These are all things that I, as a radio TV film degree holder from the University of Wisconsin Oshkosh, like I took classes on multicam television production. Like we are still taught these skills in today's television production world. If you're going to work in television production in any way, shape, or form, you need to know how to run a studio set. It was also the first time a visibly pregnant woman was seen on TV in I Love Lucy. Proving that her talents extended beyond the realm of comedy, the entrepreneur became the first female studio head in Hollywood. That is fucking badass. As president of Desilu Productions, she broke the glass ceiling for women executives in the film and television industry, and her shows live on in syndication. Ball went on to garner 13 Emmy nominations and four Emmy Awards for her work. In 1986, she received a Kennedy Center honor for her contributions to the world of entertainment. In 1989, she was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom. She also passed away in 1989. So, Lucille Ball's impact on the industry, indisputable. We simply just don't have time to count all the ways Nicole Kidman has impacted the film industry. Let's just suffice it to say that she's been gracing our screens for three decades. 
an article from BuzzFeed News aptly titled, How Many Times Does Nicole Kidman Have to Prove Herself?, makes the point that while male actors can coast on the brilliance of a single performance for years and years, female stars have to reapply for greatness on a yearly basis. How fucking true is that? The world has been preoccupied with her love life literally fucking forever. Seriously, who gives a fuck if she's married to Tom Cruise or Keith Urban? She is a goddess and a fucking force of an actress. It will be hard for me not to make Jonah watch dozens of Nicole Kidman movies for this podcast, but films we most definitely have to do include To Die For, Maybe Far and Away, Moulin Rouge and Practical Magic, which I've already made him watch, but we still need to do an episode on it anyway. Don't even get me started on how amazing she is in Big Little Lies. Her portrayal of Celeste is heart-wrenchingly authentic. And there are so many movies of hers that I still have yet to watch. In fact, I better get on that. I'm going to use that as an excuse to take my leave. Thank you for tuning in to this week's mini-sode. Join us next week for my next pick, which could be anything from Pretty in Pink to Phantom of the Opera to Jawbreaker. I have no fucking idea. I've got to post it with like five different movies on it. Uh, Part of me was like, "Mm, let's watch a rom-com because Valentine's Day. Oh, let's watch an anti-rom-com because Valentine's Day. So I don't know. Just gonna have to fucking flip a coin. Anyway, I hope you have a wonderful rest of your week and get out there, support your local movie theaters, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Movie Lovers. If you like what you heard today, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Your feedback goes a really long way to helping our little podcast that could be seen by the world. Also, don't forget to give us a follow on Facebook and Instagram, too. You can find us by searching the handle Movie Lovers Pod on either platform. This is the part of the podcast where Jonah and I shamelessly promote our respective services that we provide in our careers. I'm a session musician and composer for hire. I do commission pieces ranging from podcast jingles to keyboard and orchestral arrangements, video game soundtracks, etc. The sky is the limit. If you're looking for custom composition services, you can find me on my website at www.jonahweingarten.com. That's J-O-N-A-H-W-E-I-N-G-A-R-T-E-N.com. Movie Lovers is a Mally Creative production. I, Mally, am the owner of Mally Creative, a marketing and multimedia design agency. If you or anyone you know is in the market for social media strategy, design, or management services, or perhaps you need a new website designed or even print or digital graphic design services, please reach out to me at my website, www.mallycreative.com. Again, that's www.mallycreative.com. If you'd like to advertise on our podcast, please reach out to us on social media, on our website at www.movieloverspod.com, or by contacting Mally Creative.